So as a diehard David Lynch fan and fan of all pieces of media that involve blurring the lines between reality and illusion, I thought I'd give Satoshi Kon's 1997 masterpiece Perfect Blue a watch. Like my man David Lynch, Perfect Blue blurs the lines between what is real and tangible versus what is the illusion our minds have fabricated. This specific genre of film is something that I've been so fixated on even before I discovered David Lynch and postmodern cinema. I was just always obsessed with the concept of dreamscapes and pondering whether, you know, things were real or not. Like, there would be times when I just let my mind wander and with the vivid imagination I have, I'd relive very specific moments from my childhood. And I'd think to myself, how are these moments that I recall so oddly specific, like almost scarily, bizarrely specific? In fact, a very unsettling fact I recently found out was that over 60% of our memories are false. I know, crazy. For me, as a fairly sentimental person here and there when it comes to memories, a lot of my very specific memories with specific details that I remember, I hold very near and dear to myself, like they are defining parts of my life. And the idea that there's an uncertain chance that a lot of them could be fake or not how I perceived it or possibly warped over time is just crazy. So, according to Healthline.com, confabulation is a symptom of various memory disorders in which made-up stories fill in any gaps in memory. And this was coined by German psychiatrist Karl... I'm not even going to try to pronounce that last name. Karl Bonhoeffer. Yeah, so you're telling me that the very specific nostalgic memories I have possibly couldn't have happened? Or that my mind and recollection has subconsciously warped it and distorted my perception of my own reality over time? That does not sit right with me. Well, anyway, I think that I should get more into the nitty-gritty of Perfect Blue's plot. So, this film is about Japanese pop idol Mima, who decides to quit her career as a pop idol and become an actress. So, like any actor, like myself and others I know, she's desperate for any role, no matter how degrading or humiliating it is. So, first of all, she takes a minor role in a thriller crime drama show. And also, like the rich old men in the film industry who see her as nothing but an object, her agent decides to erase her innocent good girl image. You know, it's kind of like those precocious child stars, or industry plants as they're called. So they were child actors since such a young age, and like, god, imagine being in the public eye at the ripe age of eight. So I think that it's safe to say that most of these child actors had zero control over their image and how they were perceived. So 
The likes of Dakota and Elle Fanning, those Disney Channel stars, Christina Ricci, the Home Alone Kid, just to name a few. Mima's transition from innocent pop star to actress, and then eventually sex symbol, we'll touch on that later, is kind of like a child actor's rite of passage, maturing from this innocent child actor and then gradually developing their own image and choosing how they want to be perceived. As they progress past the adolescent stage and finally have the freedom to develop their own persona as a celebrity in the public eye. So, Mima in this scenario. She's finally matured past the factorized, manufactured, put-together persona from that pop group she was in. Okay, I've never been a fan of, like, um, One Direction and stuff, but it's kind of like what happened with them. They were put together in an almost factory-produced band with a set image and having an agent controlling their personas, and as they all matured in their careers and outgrew that, they developed their own images and singled themselves out as individuals. Or another classic example of this is the Beatles. So it's kind of similar to what Mima's doing here. She grew past that stage and is now tarnishing her image. So where was I? Yeah, she lands a minor role in that drama series, and then her agent gets her to play a bigger role, but she's performing in a strip club and gets raped on camera. And as this scene is taking place, it is implied through Mima's less controlled body language and reactions to the rape scene that she has started to become unclear about what's real and what's not. And she can't distinguish whether it's acting or reality, so this is just the beginning of her delusion and eventual descent into madness and attachment. I'd just like to add, Mima starting to find it hard to determine whether she is playing a character or is experiencing reality is quite parallel to Laura Dern's character in David Lynch's Inland Empire. So, like Mima, she's an actress whose perception of reality gets distorted as she acts in this supposedly cursed TV production, and eventually goes on a journey of increasing insanity. So this trope is jokingly called sometimes the female joker. Yeah, Winona Ryder and Girl Interrupted type shit. Yeah, anyway. So this is the beginning of her tarnishing her good girl image. So after that, she gets new publicity photos taken for her. A lot of which are of her stripping fully naked. And this whole time, well, throughout the whole plot, like ever since the very beginning, she's being stalked by this overly obsessive fan, and he makes various attempts at gruesomely trying to kill people around her to drop hints. He's doing all of this because he wants to accuse Mima of being a traitor for ditching her old persona and adopting a new one. So throughout the film, there are various haunting shots of him. And this character has limited dialogue, which I think makes his impact on the film far more powerful and disturbing. Okay, I know this is a visual thing, and we're here to dig deeper than the surface, unlock those unconscious thoughts, go to the very bottom of the iceberg, you know, all that Freudian jazz, but 
One of my favorite shots in this film are when the stalker is watching Mima at her last concert before she resigns as a pop star. It's it's a shot of him in the audience from his perspective, and he's holding his hand out, positioning his hand so that it looks like, from his perspective, that Mima is standing on the palm of his hand. So he's like, yeah, his hand's like out, and she's standing on it. You know. <laughs> yeah, I'm like acting it out for you right now, but it's probably useless because you can't see me. But yeah, you get the picture. Now this is a very symbolic shot because it perfectly sums up this film's idea of perception and of an individual's skewed and twisted reality that may not be the actual reality, but it's their own truth that has been fabricated in their head. Also, side note, this stalker character gives off incel virgin who lives in his mum's basement and has probably never been touched by a woman before vibes. So, yeah. Okay, going slightly off topic here, the case of Mima's stalker in this film is very resemblant to Bjork's stalker, Ricardo Lopez. First of all, they both occurred with an obsessive fan and pop star in the 90s. So this man was unhappy with the fact that Bjork's life did not involve him. He didn't like that he was not a part of her love life, so he sent her threatening messages, made really haunting tapes about this process, and he really obsessively looked into her private life, which is kind of similar what, to what Mima's stalker was doing in Perfect Blue, because he published all these oddly, scarily specific diary entries of specific details from her personal life onto this public blog. So yeah, Bjork Stalker mailed her a package of some sort of sulfuric gas to try and kill her, and then he killed himself, hoping that Bjork would die from the package he sent her, so that they could die together and then meet in the afterlife. Jeez. So... These two obsessive stalker fans were unhappy with the set-in-stone reality, and they decided that the best thing for them to do was to manipulate and fabricate reality so that it would be their reality. Yikes. Also, another crucial part of the plot. While Mima's previous image is waning, some alternate version of her past self appears to her in like a, it's kind of like a dreamlike, dream state, like hallucination state. Very Lynchian. You know, you saw that coming. I've always got a name drop David Lynch, you know it. So this haunting ghost-like persona that keeps appearing to her keeps reminding her about her old self and how she ruined that image. However, for most of the film, we don't know whether she's hallucinating or not, or whether it's like some warped perception. And this alter ego, the appearances of it, it drives Mima to the brink of insanity. She chases after it, she is tormented in her own apartment because of this internal conflict she's having, and she even cuts herself with glass to see if she's real because she's so out of touch with reality. God, this is so Black Swan-esque. Well, just like Black Swan, in one of the most important scenes near the end of the film, she confronts this alternate version of herself that's been haunting her, and they get into a really gruesome physical fight, and 
she ends up stabbing her or vice versa because we don't know at this point who's who and whether it we just don't know also spoiler alert it is then revealed that this alter ego was a warped perception and that it the whole time it had been her manager suffering from some delusion where she thought that she was Mima. So I think it's called like forgive me for this terrible French pronunciation. Folie adieu. Folie adieu. Yeah. Folie adieu. Or shared psychological disorder. It's quite interesting. I do recommend you look into it. So, throughout this film, the line between reality and illusion and perception progressively gets more hazy and unclear. Mima, our tragic heroine, starts to lose control over herself and lose her own grasp of reality as she falls from grace. In a lot of shots, she's... Well, what we're, see what we're seeing is like how she's perceived by others. Like, when she's in the film studio... There's very white tones being used to represent that it's the view of the others. When she's alone in her apartment, warmer colors are used because it's showing that the only perception of her is her own self when like no when nobody's watching. And as the film progresses, the color palette gets harsher and bolder. It goes from soft, realistic-looking tones to these harsh tones with a lot of red. And now we don't even know whether what's happening is real or just a warped perception. Kind of like what I said earlier about false memories. She doubts her own reality. YouTuber John Walsh, who makes analytical videos, said in his review of the film that the fact that it's set in the 90s before Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, this film was made for celebrities, people who put themselves out there in the public eye. Back then when the film was released, it was only relatable for the niche audience of celebrities. He also pointed out that it's terrifying that this film is more relevant now than it was in the 90s because... Now that we have social media and can be our own micro-celebrities, we craft what we think is the perfect image to put online to our followers. We select the best bits of our lives to fabricate how others perceive us. And the scary thing about this film is that it tells us what happens when someone loses control of how others perceive them. And when it gets completely out of hand, to the point where they don't even know who they are anymore, or if they're real, or of what's real. So throughout the film, it starts to seem as if Mima is losing touch with her reality. She's lost control of her identity, and now her image has been objectified, and she's put in the hands of people who perceive how they want to perceive her. The fans of her previous pop group, who see her as some pure, doll-like pop star, her manager and agents, the people working on the film set with her, her stalker, and most importantly, the fans who have been exposed to her new image. They all have a different perception of her. It's really terrifying to think about how, when your persona is that exposed, you get perceived differently by different people. Like, as you're listening to this podcast, what's your perception of me? Answer in three, two, one.
Yeah, you see, the thing is, as you're listening to my voice, you're perceiving me. And depending on the limits of your imagination, you have this perception of me, this persona that you fabricated based on the information that is directly available to you and all these clues I've given about myself for you to fabricate your idea of how I am. When the reality is, all you know is that I'm just a voice analyzing films name-dropping David Lynch. Yeah, you're perceiving me. There you go. Well, I, I do it all the time with celebrities I look up to, so if you know about the Myers-Briggs personality test, as someone who's been quite fascinated with these psychological tests just for fun, I love to use it as a tool to perceive people. Ah, that's another thing you know about me now. I find psychology tests fascinating and love perceiving people. Yeah, anyway, when I meet people, I think to myself, I wonder what their Myers-Briggs type is. And then I guess what their type is, solely based on the information and mannerisms that they portray to me directly on the surface, without me fully knowing them. See, crazy. Yeah, crazy that sometimes I have fully fleshed out perceptions of people where I only know a few things about them. Also, in case you're wondering, my Myers-Briggs type is ENTP, aka the debater. So there you go. I gave you another piece of information about myself for you to perceive me with. So if you are unfamiliar with these types, your Myers-Briggs type is made up of four initials. Introversion versus extroversion, senses versus intuition, thinking versus feeling, and judging versus perceiving. Yeah, I think it's pretty damn clear that I'm a perceiver. I've used the word perceive at least 50 times in this episode. Take a shot every time Faith talks about perceiving. So with these personality types, there are numerous slightly unreliable websites where it lists the personality types of celebrities. I do admit, I'm very curious as to what the types of my favorite celebrities would be, so I'd look it up and be like, oh my god, I knew they were that one, or wow, they're such a whatever, oh, they're the same as me, yeah, I knew it, etc. But the thing is, like with Mima in Perfect Blue, the so-called personality and perception we have of celebrities, it's not really real. Basically, their managers and the people who work on brushing up their image work carefully to create this surface-level persona that they give us, and it's not really who they are as regular people. So that's why we can never truly know the personality of a celebrity with the hand-picked information and mannerisms that's been fed to us consumers. Not unless we know them personally. And the thing is, even if you do know someone well, as judgmental and inquisitive human beings, we tend to interpret things about them and make assumptions on them solely based on the information that is given to us on the surface. So it's kind of like, you know, I've touched on this before um, in Freudian terms. So you've got the iceberg analogy. So the tip of the iceberg is just what you see on the surface. It's not that deep. So yeah, that's what's available to us when you first meet someone. It's how you perceive them based on the surface level information. 
Okay, so the final important psychological aspect that I'd like to talk about is a very fascinating concept that I find myself relating to, and that is parasocial relationships. To define a parasocial relationship, they are one-sided relationships occurring between a fan and a celebrity idol. It sums up celebrity fascination in a nutshell, because idol culture is us thinking we know stuff about these people we consider we love dearly, but the reality is, they don't know who we are and we're nothing but an adoring fan. Yes, parasocial relationships are perfectly healthy. In fact, I have a parasocial marriage with Kyle McLaughlin and Christoph Waltz. They will never know of my existence, but because I consume their media and find them very attractive, I have a parasocial relationship with them. See, these people do not know I exist, and they never will, but it's entirely one-sided. This ties into the stalker in the film's perception of Mima, because this and other cases of celebrity stalkers are prime examples of when an obsessed fan's parasocial relationship spirals out of control and they can't take the fact that their so-called relationship to their idols is entirely parasocial. So they strive to change that. That is when parasocial relationships get problematic. Psychologists have often debated whether a parasocial relationship is healthy. And the answer is, it's healthy and normal until you let it get out of control and can't accept that your relationship with these celebrities you look up to can't become anything more than just a parasocial one. So, parasocial relationships can involve the obsessed fan fantasizing and creating a romanticized version in their head of this celebrity who they claim to know so well and have some connection to. I myself am guilty of this. I do it all the time. I'd get attached to an idol of mine and claim I have some special, one-of-a-kind spiritual connection to them, when the reality is I'm just another fan. So yeah, this romanticized version of the celebrity one admires is fabricated by the individual based on the surface level pieces of this person's identity that are portrayed to them. So think about it like a jigsaw puzzle. The end result, which is the jigsaw puzzle, is perception. And all the little puzzle pieces are clues that you get about a person that you put together to create this romanticized perception of them. For example, one of my favorite actresses, Elizabeth Debicki, said once in an interview that she considers herself not to be that much of an interesting person and that her image is often romanticized by the media when the reality is she's just an average person with average thoughts and an average life when she's not in the spotlight. So with celebrities that we're obsessed with, we're not actually obsessed with the real authentic them. We're obsessed with their romanticized persona that is being so carefully and cleverly crafted by their publicity agents. That's the dark reality of it. Because people in these industries are treated like their goal is not to show their real authentic self, but 
to portray their glamorized persona that's being created for them, for us to consume. Well, to sum up this episode, we've talked about the three P words in Perfect Blue. Perceptions, personas, and parasocial relationships. And what happens when someone loses their own grasp of their self-perception and their reality? We've explored how people perceive others, based on the information that is directly available to them. You know, there's quite a lot of P-words here. Parasocial, perception, persona, psychological, psychoanalysis, psychosis, philosophy, postmodernism, and perfect blue. I highly recommend you check this film out, if you haven't already. If you're a fan of David Lynch or neo-noir and love analyzing things, trust me, you'll be drooling over it. Think Black Swan meets David Lynch meets Brian De Palma meets Wong Kar Wai. Highly recommend. Coincidentally, a lot of the themes of Perfect Blue are vaguely similar to David Lynch's neo-noir, psychological thriller, cult classic, my favorite, 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 favorite film of all time, Blue Velvet, which I most definitely will talk about in the next episode. Perfect Blue, Blue Velvet, we've got a bit of a blue theme going on here. So stay tuned for episode two where we will be discussing unconscious desires, metaphorical misogyny, the unconventional hidden within the conventional, and psychological complexes in Blue Velvet. And that's a wrap.